So let's look at Colossae. What can be said? So the book of Colossians is a letter written by Paul to the church in a town in what is called, well, Asia Minor, but we call it Turkey today, called Colossae. That was the name of the town. What can be said about Colossae? Not much. Uh, It's one of the few kind of significant cities from the ancient world that has never been excavated. There's been talk of excavating it, but nobody's gone out there and excavated uh, ancient Colossae. There's a town, that uh, it was actually the town side of Colossae was abandoned, and there's another town that sprung up uh, a, a, l- a little bit of ways away, but uh, it's not built on top of the old site, so they could actually go in and, and look at the old site, but they've just never done it because it really wasn't that important of a town in the Mediterranean world. Now, they did have an amphitheater there. They found the amphitheater, and they say the amphitheater could have held about 5,000 people, so they can kind of guess based upon the size of the amphitheater that they had how many people lived in the town. I don't know if they'll be able to do that in, in a thousand years here. They'll go dig up the movie theaters and be like, well, this town had three movie theaters, so it must have had 5,000 people or, or whatever they would do. But that's what they do with the, in the ancient world. And so this theater held about 5,000, so they think the population was probably somewhere between, between twenty-five and 30,000 people during Paul's day. Now, Ephesus is 100 miles away from Colossae, and Ephesus was probably the most important town in the world. It was kind of like the New York City. Uh, It and Rome uh, would compete for for the most important city in the ancient world. Uh, Ephesus had about 250 to uh, 300,000 people living there, so quite a bit larger. Uh, Colossae, we can look at the map here. You can kind of see where it is. Now, show the other map I think is more helpful. Okay, so you, can, you see Italy over there where Rome is. Then you move over to Greece where you've got Thessaloniki and Corinth. And then you see coming over here into what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey. You've got Ephesus, which was the major important city. And then you can see where Colossae is there uh, to the southwest. So go ahead and show the more close-up map. Here's a map of Asia Minor. And you can see, it's really hard to go over here. But you all see... Uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Laodicea. You can see the seven churches that show up in the book of Revelation in those letters. They're all right there. So whenever you read in Revelation, where are these letters being sent? It's being sent to these churches in Asia Minor. And Colossae is right down there on the southern tip of where that little cluster of those seven churches. It wasn't one of the seven churches. It probably would have been uh, related very closely to Laodicea, uh, the lukewarmer Christians. But this uh, Colossae wasn't included in that letter, but it's kind of in that region. So you can kind of see where it was. That doesn't help us a whole lot, but uh, if you look up a picture of it on Google, don't do it now, it looked like a beautiful place to live. It's right next to a mountain range, and you could look out of, of your house you know, and see what they called the father of all mountains there in Turkey. Uh, so that's kind of the background on the city that we really know about it. There's no indication that Paul ever went there. So this letter was written to a people that Paul had most likely never met face to face. But he knew some people that lived there that we know, we know of. It's believed that Philemon came to Ephesus and heard the gospel from Paul. And then we know that Philemon's slave, Onesimus, ran away and ran to Paul. So, and, and served Paul, and then Paul sent him back to Philemon, and Philemon lived there in Colossae. 
Now, why was the letter of Colossians written? Why is this in your Bible? Well, like all the letters, or most of the letters that we have from Paul that are written to a church or written to people, he writes because there's an issue. There was an issue in Colossae, in the church there, and Paul heard of this issue, and he sent this letter to help them understand the problem that they were having, why the teaching that they were being exposed to was wrong, and Paul wrote this letter to get this church back on track. We can go to Colossians, we can see that we fall victim to some of the things that the Colossians were falling victim to, and this is a great letter to get us back on track because it focuses us like a laser beam on the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 1. I'll read this to you, make a few comments, and then I want to make three points before we move on to the actual theme. Oh, I need to start my sermon here. I got a little, got a little for free, didn't I? Uh, chapter 1, Colossians, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, messenger of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, this is Paul's authority, I'm an apostle because of God's will, and who's with him? Timothy, our brother. So Paul has a team there. So it's Paul and Timothy that are writing this letter to the saints. Look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers. To the family there in Christ at Colossae. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Many of Paul's letters start off mentioning grace and peace. What is the only way we can actually have grace and peace from the Father? It's only possible through Jesus Christ. So right away, we're focusing on the gospel. The fact that even though you're sitting here and you're a sinner and you're an enemy of God, because of what the Father has done in sending His Son, you can experience the grace of God and you can have peace with God even today if you will turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing and he says, as it also does among you, to those Colossians, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. They had heard the gospel. They had understood the gospel. And the gospel was bearing fruit and it was increasing among them. Well, how did they hear of the gospel? How did they understand the gospel? Who brought the gospel to these Colossians? It was not Paul. He says here in verse 7, it was one of his associates. Just as you learned it, we have to learn the gospel. And once we learn the gospel, it is our duty to obey the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? What is the gospel? What does it say to you? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a command, isn't it? That's a command that you obey. We're told by the Word of God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn the Gospel, then we obey the Gospel. They learned the Gospel from a man named Epaphras. Paul says he's a great guy. He's a beloved and fellow servant. And he served those people. And he served God by bringing them the Gospel. He is a, Paul says in verse 7, 
He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We're not there together, but Epaphras and the Spirit of your church has made known to us. We feel loved by you because of Epaphras' spirit and his servanthood. This is the introduction to the letter, these first eight verses. And in these first eight verses, Paul indicates that he has a passion for people, he has a passion for Christ, and he has a passion for the practical work of the gospel, which is, what should the gospel do? It should cause fruit to be born in our lives. It saves us, it uh, is the way and the means of our sins being forgiven, but it also does something. It produces fruit. When the Spirit comes to indwell in us, it doesn't just stay in here. It comes from the inside and works itself out in fruit-bearing in the believer's life. Paul had a passion for God's people. Again, he's never met these people, but he heard there was a problem. They were struggling there in Colossae, and he took the time to write them this letter. This is a medium to smallish-sized epistle, but did you know that if you and I were going to try to write this letter and send it in the way Paul did it with getting an amanuensis, which is a secretary, a scribe, to write down what he's done here, you know how much it would cost you? About $1,000 in our money today just to send this letter. You're able to send a letter for 55 cents. Is that how much stamps cost? Have they gone up? What is it now? 60 cents. 67 cents for a stamp? That's outrageous. What's going on? What's happened to this country? Uh, I don't know how much they were when I was born, but they weren't 60 cents. But still, that's a lot cheaper than $1,000. So stamps used to be a lot more expensive in the Roman world. But you had to, you had to, have this, you had to write this on animal skin. So it was, a, it was a very expensive thing just to get the writing material, to hire someone, to write all of this out. And he loved that church enough to, I, see, I won't even buy you a 67-cent stamp. But Paul, he, he for $1,000, it was a sacrifice to get this letter to the people. Why did he do it? Because he loved them. Because he wanted to shepherd them even from afar. He understood his authority and his duty as an apostle, and he wanted to teach them. And what an amazing thing. You know, here was a town that really doesn't seem to matter that much. Even archaeologists all over the world, they could walk over there with shovels and they could dig stuff up. And you know what they're thinking? We're just going to find a bunch of Colossian trash. Nothing exciting ever happened to this town. It wasn't really notable for anything. It was 100 miles away from the big city. I wonder who else we know that lives in a town that maybe nobody would ever dig out. A small town about 100 miles from the big town. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? But God cared about those people. Does God care about the people here? Yeah. Remember, that was kind of our lesson in Numbers chapter 1, wasn't it? Everybody matters. Even the people in this backwoods market community of Colossae mattered. And the apostle said they're having a problem, and they matter. People say to me, uh, my friends will say, are you still in Olney? Are you still leading the music in Olney? I'm like, yes, I'm not giving that up, and I'm still preaching there too. And they so that's is that a small church? And I said, it's probably bigger than yours, and y'all can't afford me. But uh, it's true. I mean, we're, we're not a small, but looking at the, the, the numbers today, it's pretty small. But we're not, a, we're not a small church, okay? But we do live in a place where you've really got to be going through there. You've got to be going to Lubbock. Or you're usually going somewhere else to, to go through Olney, okay? And we, we, under, we understand that, that, that it's a small town. And, and 
whenever I have conversation with people about the difference between rural and urban ministries, yes, there's a lot more people in big cities, but what I'll say is, did the people here not matter? And I think this letter of Colossians encouraged me in that way as I began to study that, to see the parallels between Alney and Colossae, or just small towns that nobody thinks much of. But God can do amazing things in small towns. God usually raises up people from small towns to do all the important stuff in the world. Because there's nothing that makes and forms a person like a small town, right? And I, I didn't grow up in a small town, but I got to this one as fast as I could. And I'm proud to send Adelaide off from Olney, Texas to go to the big A&M school with 70,000 people there. But I know she's going to do well and she's going to exceed and excel because she's, she's been in this, this environment where she's been loved and nurtured and taught and been forced to work hard and all of those things. And, and, and people matter here. Just like Colossians mattered to Paul. And you and I should likewise have a passion for the people here in our community. To the saints, he says. These saints in Colossae. What is a saint? Is a saint just a statue sitting up on top of the Vatican in Rome? Is a saint someone that gets put into a stained glass mirror? That's not what it means. A saint is a saved person who's been separated from the world. He says, to the saints and faithful. Now, that, that's not necessarily talking about just the object of their faith, but it's talking about the fact that they demonstrate their faith by their actions. They are saints and they are faithful brothers. Paul uses that word brothers and it, it reminds us that brothers are in a family. This is to the faithful brothers, to the faithful family in Christ at Colossae. We've never met, but we are brothers. He'd heard good things about the church. He's heard of their, did y'all notice that in verses 4 and 5? Let me read it to you again. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your what? Are y'all paying attention? Okay, now look at verse 4. Do what you're told. Here we go. (laughs) Since we heard of your in Christ Jesus and of the that you have for all the saints because of the now where else have we heard faith, hope, and love? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a theme of Paul. You know, we kind of breezed through it and we all missed it, didn't we? But these are three important things that Paul comes back to because he loves people and he wants people to be full of faith. He wants them to love one another and he wants them to have hope. These three qualities should be evident in all of us. We should have faith in Christ. We should love one another. What is our duty to one another as a church? To care for one another's souls. We're called to love God. We're called to love one another. And people who love God and love one another, people who live that way in such a different way than the way the world lives, we should be hopeful people. Your hope should fuel your faith. Your hope should fuel your love. It was doing that for the Colossians, wasn't it? They were full of faith, they were full of love, and they were people of hope. Hope was driving their faith (coughs) and driving their love. What is hope? What is hope for a believer? Hope for a believer is a sure future. Do you have a sure future? Think about your future for a minute. 
What lies ahead for you? I, I heard Mac's sermon as I was editing it this week for the radio. And he was talking about the fact that as he's getting older, he realizes the end is near. You know, if, if Jesus doesn't come back, Mac realizes as, we, as you get to a certain stage in life, is there a decade left? Are there two decades left? We, we see the evening sun setting low in our lives and we know what everyone's future is. We get out there on the road and we pass the cemetery and although people can deny it, what is the undeniable fact? That's the way of all flesh, isn't it? Is to perish. And I don't know why that just doesn't drive everybody absolutely crazy. Especially people that don't know Christ. How do you get up in the morning knowing that that's what's going to happen to you? Melissa used to say it's amazing that human beings have this ability to deny the fact that we're all going to die. But we just don't think about it. But Christians do. Because for a believer, we have a sure future. What happens the moment a person in Christ dies? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What happens at the resurrection and the judgment for a believer? You will be fully saved. You will be fully justified because of the work of Christ. What happens in a new heaven and a new earth? You will rule and reign with Christ. That's my future. Christian, that is your future. We have a certain hope. We have a certain future. And should that just make a difference in the future? No, that should make a difference now. I heard a pastor put it this way. He said, all that hope you have in the future that I just read to you, all those wonderful things, they're in the future, but for a believer, all that future hope needs to work backwards to now. And it needs to be a reality in our life right now. It should move us, just as it did the saints in Colossians, to be full of faith and full of love. This beauty... It's the reality of what, this beautiful life that we can live as believers, we can live it because of the reality of what Christ has accomplished for the people of God. He made us saints. He set us apart. He said, this is the future of all these people, but I'm separating you and this is your future. Completely different. If you're a saint, you have a sure and certain future. And Paul was thrilled to hear the good reports of what was happening in Colossae. But there was a problem in the church. And it had to do with false teachers who'd come in. And usually when there's a problem in the church, it has to do with false teachers that have come in and taught them something different about Christ than the true gospel. And so Paul is writing them this letter. Even in the first few sentences, he's putting their focus on Christ. Paul had a passion for the people. He was proud of what was going on there. But Paul had an even greater passion for Christ. And so we see him pointing them to Jesus in these first few verses, mentioning Christ over and over again. Look at Paul's passion for Christ. He says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the faithful brothers in Christ. He reminds them in verse 3 that Jesus is God's Son. He speaks of Epaphras as being a minister of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that the health and the survival of this church depended on one thing, a right understanding of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What has he done? For the health and welfare of First Baptist Church of Olney, we need to have a right understanding of Jesus Christ. It all starts with Jesus. It all ends with Jesus. I mean, that's what he said, isn't it? I'm the Alpha 
and I'm the omega. I'm the A, and I'm the Z. Now, A and Z, A can't be Z, and Z can't be A, but Jesus says, I'm the A and the Z. What's he saying? He says, I'm everything. I'm all of it. And so Paul's pointing them again to Jesus because this is how a church is healthy. This is how a church thrives. We can have a lot of things. We kind of talked about this a little in our Sunday school class. There can be a lot of things that we focus on. A beautiful building, uh, remodeling the sanctuary, building new buildings, all those kind of things. But if we ever take our focus off of Jesus Christ, you know what happens to a church? It dies. Because it's not the church of buildings. It's not the church of activities. It's not the church of programs. It's the church of Jesus Christ. If you lose Christ, you lose the church. And Paul knew this. This heresy, this what we call the Colossian heresy, was coming in, and they were saying, you know, things about Jesus that were not true. All of the life of a church flows from a right understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he's doing now. And finally, our passage emphasizes not just the the person of Jesus Christ, but what happens when a person believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this letter, we're going to explore what was going wrong. And Paul's saying, hey, if you'll reorient and understand Christ is preeminent and not be caught up in all these traditions and all these stories and all these sayings and all this spirituality, if you won't be messed up with all that and you've got your focus on Jesus Christ, here's how it's going to work out in every area of your life. The passage emphasizes, if we can look in verse 3, the work of the gospel. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you since we heard of your faith and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. What does the gospel do? It causes fruit to be born. A true believer bears fruit. When you believe, you are filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit produces fruit. The Spirit bears fruit in a believer's life. That's the assurance that we have that we believe the gospel. Lots of people say they believe. If we walked outside and and we just did a poll, how many people do you think say, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? What do you think most people probably say? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did that years ago. I did it years ago. You know? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I got things right with God. I walked an aisle at a revival, you know, 25 years ago. I haven't set foot back in a church since then. But yeah, I did the whole Jesus is my Lord thing. Well, anybody can say Jesus is their Lord. How do you know that Jesus is really your Lord? Well, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Can't see that. But I can't see the wind either. But you know what I can see? I can see the trees shaking. I can see the effects of the wind. And that's how it is with the Spirit. When the Spirit's in a believer's life, you can see the effects. The Bible refers to that as the bearing of fruit. It's something appears on the branches. And we can determine by looking at our own lives, by examining ourselves to see if we're really in the faith, we look and say, where's the fruit? Where's the change? Remember in our biblical counseling course, we talked about the idea of, of producing fruit. And we said, good root, good fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. And remember, we talked about Paul Tripp's uh, fruit stapling idea. So here's kind of the illustration on that. 
Imagine how crazy it would be if you drove by my house on Avenue O and there's a tree out in the front yard. It's right there by the road. Let's say you just drove by there and I'm up in a ladder and I've got a, I've got a bucket of apples on the ground and I've got a big giant stapler or some tape or something like that and I'm up there taping apples into the tree. And you're going to think, oh man, this guy, he's, he's, uh, he's lost his mind. I don't know what he's doing. So Chad, what are you doing? It's like, well, I just, I want an apple tree. And I want this to be an apple tree. So I went and got a bunch of apples and I'm putting them up in the tree. I'm taping them up here. And I just, I love apple trees. I've always wanted an apple tree. And you would say, um, that is, that's not a fruit tree. You're, 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 you're a little fruity, but... <laughs> That's not a fruit tree. And what happens when someone picks an apple? Is that apple still alive? I mean, that apple's dead at that point, right? It's just, it's before long, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot. There's no life in it anymore, except the seeds. You'd say, well, that's, that's not a fruit tree. That fruit's going to rot and spoil if you tape it up there. <clears throat> and that fruit is not, that tree is never going to make apples. And you would say, Chad, that's not how fruit bearing works. It has to be a fruit tree. And the fruit has to grow as it's nourished from the root to the tips of the branches that bear the fruit. That's the natural process for fruit bearing. Same with us as a believer. A believer has a new nature. We go from being rooted in ourselves, rooted in sin, to being rooted in Christ. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, so we will naturally bear spiritual fruit. Paul says that's what the gospel does right there, doesn't he? It's bearing fruit in all the world, and it's bearing fruit among you. It's flourishing everywhere, even in the little town of Colossae. Even in places I've never been, God's Word has made it there, and it's bearing fruit because the gospel is powerful. Is the gospel powerful in your life? That's that's a convicting question, isn't it? Because I can look at my life and see so many areas where I know the gospel's powerful, but am I yielding to it, to its power? Am I feeling, I, I, and I know I do, have a conviction from the Holy Spirit. Stop saying things like that. Stop thinking like that. Stop doing that. And I know when I, when I have those convictions, and I hope you know when you have those convictions, that that's an indication that you are saved. The Holy Spirit's working. You know it's real. And you, you'd say, you, you might try to run from God, but you can't. He keeps bringing you back saying, no, no, no. This is not what's best for you. I love you. Do what I've told you to do so that you'll thrive and that you'll flourish. I'm the Lord. I'm your Father. Listen to me. Listen to my word. Is the gospel powerful in our lives? Is the gospel increasing in our lives? Is the fruit increasing Let's examine ourselves. That's what we should be doing as a church, as individuals. Are we seeing growth? Are we seeing fruit bearing? And if you've never repented and believed, it's not there yet. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you do good things. Maybe you're like me up in the tree and you're trying to staple good fruit to a bad root. It doesn't work that way, does it? The change has to happen from the inside out. Good root, good fruit. Bad root, bad fruit. 
So where do you need to allow the Spirit to soften you up and mold you and make you? What needs to change today? Chad, what needs to change in your life today? Ask yourself that question. Is my life a demonstration of faith, hope, and love? And that brings us to the theme of the letter. You know, there are famous people in the world. And then there are people that seem famous to the famous people. And this is my opinion, and you you might have a different opinion, but I think one of the most famous people that's ever lived, and certainly probably the most famous athlete who's ever lived, is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is one of those remarkable stories. A young black man from Louisville, Kentucky, rises to national and worldwide fame, winning an Olympic gold medal in 1960. He was a light heavyweight then, but he became a heavyweight fighter. He would float like a, and sting like a, (laughs) see, everybody knows his sayings, you know, there's not that many people you could do that with. But he would move around in the ring, and they say he was remarkably agile for a heavyweight. And so they said, well, if anybody ever catches him, and they actually land a punch on him, he'll fold. Well, then what they discovered about Muhammad Ali is that he could take a punch. And he could take a lot of punches. You could just beat him silly, and he never went down. Or rarely went down, I should say. Because George Foreman knocked him down. But he was a fierce warrior. And he fought anybody who challenged him. Listen to this statistic. Between 1970 and 1975, he fought 22 times. I mean, think about the fighters of today. You know, if they fight once every two or three years, it's kind of a big deal. The big pay-per-view Ali, he would fight anybody who challenged him, and he would fight them anywhere in the world. And so he developed worldwide fame. They say when Muhammad Ali carried the torch in the 1996 Olympics, probably one of the last things that he really did publicly, he was suffering very badly from Parkinson's disease, stood up there with that torch. They said 3.5 billion people in the world watched it. That's like half the world wanted to see what Muhammad Ali was going to do. They wanted to even pay tribute to him. He's also just a singular individual from the 20th century. He was a man of his times, but he was important and influential. He stood up for what he believed in. And he made a claim about himself from the very beginning of his career. Muhammad Ali said this about himself. He said, I am among the greats. Is that what he said? (laughs) What did he say? I am the greatest. I'm the greatest. He didn't say I'm one of the unique boxers. No, that's that's not what he said. He didn't say, yeah, you know, me and Larry Holmes and Joe Frazier and George Foreman, you know, we were the greatest. He said, I am the greatest. There's another word we can use for greatest, and that word is preeminent. To be preeminent means that you tower above, that you surpass all others. You are the greatest. And Colossians was written for a reason. It was written to combat heresy. Now, there was a heresy that was spreading in the church, and it had to do with the misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And so Paul was writing this letter to them, and he said, listen, Jesus isn't just one of the greats. Jesus is the greatest. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 are the theme verses. If you've got your Bible open, you can read there. It says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's the image. When you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus is God. He's the firstborn. Now, that doesn't mean that there were others born, but it's saying that Jesus held the position of the firstborn son. Who was the most important son? The firstborn son. Who was the preeminent son? The firstborn son. Jesus is the firstborn over everything, over all creation. For by him all things are created. Where? In heaven. Jesus created heaven. Jesus created earth. He created the things that are visible. Jesus created the things that are invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things are created by him and they were created for him. Think about that. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus. So look up there. Y'all see up there? I'm playing with you here, but y'all are really looking. That's good. <laughs> look way up there to the top spot in your mind. Look way up there to the top spot in your life. Okay, I'm speaking figuratively. Don't really look up there. But <clears throat> think about it. The top, where's the throne of your life? Way up there. A lot of things occupy a lot of different positions in your life. But what's got the top spot? Way up there. What sits on the throne? What is preeminent? Who is preeminent in your life? There's lots of things that compete for that top spot, right? Work. Family. I mean, good things. Work, family, your leisure activities, wealth, prestige. Maybe, maybe the thing you put up there is anger. Maybe the thing you put up there is jealousy. Maybe that controls and rules you. Here is the reality when we look at that verse, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is in that top spot whether you acknowledge it or not. This whole book is an argument that Jesus is the top spot. He said for himself, before Abraham was, I am. What is Jesus? He's everything. He is he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, creator of all things. He reigns supreme. The only rightful person that can occupy the top spot is Jesus. There's no contender. There's only pretenders. Don't be a pretender. Even in the end, the great Muhammad Ali will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what this book is about. Jesus is the greatest. We live in times where Jesus is considered a great, but not the greatest. Yes, you can go to Jesus for truth. You can go here for truth. You can go here for truth. Or really, if you want to, just go into your own heart and find the truth there. Maybe you're the greatest or one of the greats. We live in times, as we looked at in our Sunday school lesson today, we live in times where truth of God's Word is denied. Just as Jehoiakim took that scroll and cut it up and burned it, we live in a culture that burns through the Word of God. No respect. But it doesn't matter whether you believe the gospel or not. I mean, I say ultimately it does matter. <laughs> but the gospel's true whether you believe it or not. The gospel's just as true in a culture where nobody believes it. It's just as true as a culture where everybody believes it. The gospel's just as true today as it was the first time it was proclaimed. If the gospel is believed, and if you are born again, if there's a new life and a new birth, if there's faith and hope and love, there's fruit, 
And so the Christian life is a testament to one great truth. Jesus is the greatest. Is he the greatest in your life?